0: This morning we're going to be reading out of John chapter 8, starting in verse 31 going to verse 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for truth and that we can know it. And that's what we're asking for this morning. We are asking you to reveal truth to us. We're also grateful for freedom that you've delivered as as we come to know the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we're asking you this morning to do the impossible. It's impossible for us. Something only that you can do and that is to deliver freedom where it is needed. Father, if it is necessary, I pray that you would reveal to, to those of us who find ourselves as slaves to sin, I pray that you would reveal that to us, that you would reveal that truth, as painful as it might be, I pray that through the study of your word that you would reveal yourself as the deliverer from that slavery. I pray that you would do that this morning. And for those of us who have been set free, but may find ourselves placing ourselves back into that bondage, Father, I pray that you would deliver us. May we look to your son Jesus this morning as the only provider, the true source of that freedom. Will you give us wisdom and discernment as we examine ourselves to determine whether or not we are true disciples. And where needed, Father, I pray that you would provide assurance that the result of that exam, for those of us who are in the faith and have trusted in your Son, Jesus Christ, but but have, have trouble doubting that, that you would assure us that that is not something that we would ever lose, but that we have been sealed with by the power of your Holy Spirit until the day when your Son will return gloriously and take us with him, and that we would reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth, no matter what sin we find ourselves in right now. Glorify yourself this morning in the study of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Well, good morning, church. I feel like I was, it was, it's been joked about, but I have to introduce myself to you because I haven't been here in three weeks. Uh, Adam Bennett took the, the, the freedom to text me last week and say, hey, when you're not preaching, you should still show up. Uh, but no, it was, it was really good for us. We, were, we celebrated our fifth an- wedding anniversary. Uh, we got to go skiing, and uh, I bring that up once a day now, I've been told. Uh, so we got to go skiing, and then uh, we were in Baton Rouge for my brother's wedding. Uh, like leading up to the wedding stuff. So it's good to be back. It's good to be home. Uh, We are going to be pressing on the Gospel of John as we have been for a little over eight months now. Our study this morning, if you'll open up your Bibles to John chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 31 where we left off last week, and Lord willing, we will uh, go through verse 47. As you're turning there, I want to remind you once again that this book is about Christ. That's what we want you to see when we're studying John's gospel. It is about Christ as we read it, as we dig into its depth, as we meditate on the treasury of its content and consider its impact on our lives. We must always look to the primary purpose of the book, and that is Christ. Specifically, as many of us are aware, the author, the beloved disciple John, wrote this book so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God. The creator of all things, who returned to his creation to redeem it, to buy it back. And that in believing that, we would find life in him. If you don't believe me, turn to John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. It's there. Last week, Blake focused our attention on Christ as the one true light, the light of truth, through whom we can understand truth and how all truth is grounded in him and in his word. And that theme regarding truth is going to continue as we move into our passage this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 31, and we're going to fix our attention on Jesus as the source of freedom. True freedom. And it's going to come after the statement in verse 30, where it says, Many believed in Him. As we have previously seen in this gospel, there were, and as we've come to know, there still are, people described as believers in Jesus who were exposed as false believers. And they were exposed by the words of Christ. We first saw it at the end of chapter 2 in verses 23-25 through where John wrote, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And if you recall, that passage was followed by the example of that, Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Nicodemus comes to him in the night and he says, we know, Jesus, Rabbi, that you are a teacher from God. And Jesus exposed that he lacked true saving faith because he had not seen Christ in the fullness of his glory John 1:14 glory is of the only son from the father not just a teacher but he was God in the flesh that had come while he recognized that he was a man from God he still based his salvation in his good works and Jesus corrects his thinking there by telling Nicodemus that he must be born again that all that stuff that he's been doing his whole life didn't matter. That he must be born again by the Spirit. It was not of the flesh. And that was out of his control. Which, remember, Nicodemus, he got him frustrated, right? Somebody who had been a Pharisee, he's a religious elite who had been his whole life doing things according to the law and teaching others to do the same so that he could obtain salvation. And Jesus says that's not how it's done. You must be born again, and you can't control that. It come, The Spirit come, blows as the wind. No one knows where it's going, and no one knows where it came from. We saw it again in John 6, when crowds of people were following Jesus. And Jesus again exposed them as false disciples who were only coming to Him for the physical things that He could provide them. In that case, specifically, it was bread. And so when Jesus reveals Himself as the true bread of life, and it points out to them that you're settling for something that can only provide you temporary sustenance, but I'm the bread of life that you must partake of so that you can live eternally, John wrote this in, at the end of chapter 6, verse 36, after this many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. These were people who were described as believers, and then they failed to continue walking with him. We will see this unfortunate truth again this morning, that while some professed belief in Christ, their belief was lacking, it was incomplete, and was exposed by the purifying words of Christ. Now, when he does this, I hope you don't see him as condemning them, because that's not why he came. If you were to go back and read that conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus tells him in in verses 17 through 18, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So when we see Jesus exposing this morning through his words, False belief. Understand that he's not condemning them because they already stand condemned. He is exposing their unbelief so that they might be saved, so that they might realize that they are, as we will see this morning, slaves to sin. Because he's loving in that way. I was telling our prayer team this morning this is not a sermon that's always fun to preach. Because what Jesus is going to say here is you must examine yourselves to determine whether or not you are a true disciple of mine. And what I know is that there's some in this room who struggle maybe with assurance of salvation. And so when I tell yourself to examine yourself, some of you are saying, I have been. And I have doubts. My prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would reveal that to you that the Holy Spirit would remind you that salvation is not something that you could earn on your own and it's not something that you could lose on your own, but that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit if you've trusted. Not that you've mentally ascended to the truth of who Christ is, but that you've trusted that when He went on the cross, He died for every single thing that you ever did wrong. But the reality is, is, this comes up often in Scripture. And Jesus this morning is going to tell these people, because He cares about them and because He loves them, examine yourself to determine whether or not you are a true disciple. And so I have to be obedient and do the same thing, because I love you and I care about you. And so examine yourself, because what I want more than anything is for everyone in this room to be alongside reigning with Christ on the day of glory. That's what I want, and I don't want you to get there and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Our text is front-loaded this morning with tons of rich truth, so we're going to spend most of our time in the first six verses that we read this morning, and then we're going to let that, as we churn through that, let the momentum carry us through the end, uh, through the verse uh, 46. To help us in our understanding, I've identified four areas, four ideas communicated. First, we will see the test. We'll see the test of true discipleship. Then we will see true, the true source of freedom followed by false sources of freedom. And then we will see at the very end a test of true slavery. So first, the test of true discipleship in verses 31 through 32. Following this statement that many believed in him, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As I've said, this test of true discipleship is not isolated only here in Scripture, but that is something that we see throughout. If you go to Matthew and Luke's gospel, you're going to see Jesus' parable of the sower where he talks about the different types of soil that the seed is cast on. And one of those types is the, the rocky ground. And that rocky ground, what you'll see is when the seed is cast on that soil, immediately things spring up, looking very much like the fruit that they're supposed to look like. But then when the, so- the sun rises, they're scorched because the sun purifies and has determined that there's no depth there. Paul also wrote on this topic of testing to determine true- saving faith in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verses five through six, when he says, "Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Our youth are in the middle of studying James right now. And this week they will be faced with this same tough test as we read that faith without works is dead and useless. So for those of us who claim to have faith and believe in Christ like this Jewish crowd did, we must examine our works to determine if that faith has led to a life changed. James states that a mental assent to the truth of Christ is not true saving faith because even the demons believe. And they shudder. One of the helpful tools of Bible study is that the importance of an idea increases as the number of occurrences in Scripture. So what we see here is when you see this coming up over and over and over again, it's something that we should pay close attention to as believers, as people of the Word. Because if, if God saw fit to include it that many times, it must be important. Here, Jesus tells the crowd of believers, if you abide in my word, you you are truly my disciples. Now let's stop there for a second. Jesus says, you say you believe in me. Here is your test. Abide in my word. We'll see that word abide later on in John 15 when Jesus gives instruction to his disciples to abide in him the true vine. That word abide means to remain or to continue. Specifically, Jesus says that true disciples continue in his word. Now, what does that mean? For those of you who have been able to keep the commitment so far of reading through the Bible in the next two years, I think you'll finish Genesis today. Unless I'm uh, I'm either a day, day ahead, maybe, or a day behind. I can't remember. But you should finish Genesis today. If that's you, I want to encourage you by telling you that I'm excited about that. If it's not you, I would say, that's okay. Pick up where we are today and let's move forward. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying continue in the reading or continue in the hearing of my word. What he's getting at here is that the mark of true discipleship comes down to obedience and submission. What Jesus is saying is that a true disciple does not simply view him as their Savior, as the deliverer, but also as their Lord, as the as the one that they must submit to, who has authority over their life. And so we must submit to His commands and continue on in the obedience of those commands. And not just when we like what He says. See, if we agree with what Scripture says, that's easy. That obedience is okay. When Jesus says, don't murder anybody, okay, we're good there. Most of us. But then when he follows that up and says, but if you hate your brother, that's murder. Yeah, okay, but I can still hate this person or I can still hold a prejudice against this person. See, Jesus had much to say concerning this required obedience. Just in John's gospel. I'm not even going to go into anywhere else, but just in John's gospel. I'm going to go through these very quickly. So Melissa, if you'll get ready, I'm going to move through them quickly because it's a lot but there's a purpose to it. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John fourteen twenty one. whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John fourteen twenty three through 24, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. John 15:10. If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15:14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. It is very clear in scripture that we're to be obedient. A true disciple will submit to his word. They will abide in the Word. These words of Christ undoubtedly had a deep impact on our author, John. He's the one that wrote 1 John. And if you look at 1 John, that's, been, that's come to, to be known as the book of the test. Read this book, and it will describe for you what a true disciple of Jesus looks like, and you use that to examine yourself. 1 John 2, 4-6 through 6, He writes, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this. We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. First John chapter three, verses six through 10. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John three twenty four. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, I know that's a lot of Scripture that says the same thing over and over and over, but that's why I shared it. If we are true disciples of Christ, He is our Lord and He is our King, and we set ourselves under the full authority of His Word. So what does abiding in His Word look like practically? Well, first, we should be reading and hearing His Word. You cannot abide in something that you're not already in. You cannot continue in something if you're not there. It's very practical. I understand, but that's where it has to start. Now, after that, when we come to a teaching that demands a lot out of us, possibly even inconveniences us, we don't just dismiss it. Spend some time in Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. Spend some time there. And when we read Jesus saying that hating our brother or sister is the equivalent of murder, don't just ignore that and continue on murdering people with our hatred. When we read Jesus saying that we, when we think impure thoughts about a woman or a man, we are committing adultery, and that if our right eye causes us to sin, we must pluck it out, and that if our right hand causes us to sin, we must cut it off, speaking not literally. Historically, somebody did that, and guess what? They still kept sinning. But speaking to the measures, the extreme measures through which we should avoid sin. It's that serious. When he says things like that, we must submit to his authority. and We must be obedient. That means, young people, that we do whatever it takes to flee sexual immorality. If you're living with someone who is not your your spouse, or if you try to justify it by thinking things like, well... Technically we don't live with one another because he or she just stays over every once in a while but that causes you to lust or to act on that lust you submit and you continue to press on under the authority of the word you do whatever it takes you move out pick up another rent Work another job so that you can pay that rent. Whatever it takes, that's what we're supposed to do as believers. We continue on under the authority of the word. Or if looking at something on your computer or watching a TV or a movie causes you to sin, do whatever it takes. I don't know, tur- turn it off. If that doesn't work, sell your TV, crush your iPad. I- Whatever it takes. That's the extreme measures that we should be going to so that we can preserve holiness and righteousness and live under the authority of Scripture. It means that we take seriously the words of Christ when He says that we should love our enemies. That we should give to those in need when we have the ability to meet that need. we trust in Him and that we let go of our anxieties, that we rid ourselves of the pursuit of worldly and temporal riches and instead store up riches in heaven. And if somehow I've failed to hit on an area of your life where you are falling below the standard, Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, okay? So that's the standard, the authority that we should be pursuing. We are pursuing perfection. Perfection because that's who our Savior is and that's who our Lord is and that's the standard to which He is holding us. And so we press on. The good thing about being plugged into a church body is that you can see other individuals striving alongside you, encouraging you, building you up, calling you out when you're not doing that. Jesus says the test of true discipleship is not... Listening or just hearing the word, but whether or not one continues on, abides in his word, submits and obeys. Now, this is a descriptive text, not necessarily a prescriptive one. So, what I mean is, this is describing for us what a true disciple looks like. This is not explicitly Jesus telling us, go do these things. Go abide in my word. The, what, what he's getting at here is examine yourself. That's what he's prescribing. Examine yourself to determine whether or not you're a true disciple. Now, implied in that is that if you examine yourself and you find that you, you pass the test, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you, it's implied that you should be doing these things. This is what a true disciple looks like. This is what I should look like. So these are the things that I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue to press into God's word and I'm going to let it refine me, purify me, sanctify me so that I become more into the image of Christ. The focus is on examination. Right after this, Jesus describes the benefits of true discipleship. First, he says that true disciples will know the truth. Later on in John 14, Jesus will say that He is the truth. When we abide in His Word, the Word that serves as the standard for all truth, remember last week? We gain full knowledge of Him, the source of that truth. That's a benefit of true discipleship. We get to know more and more our Savior. We get to know Christ more and more. Secondly, he says that this truth will, that is found in him will set us free. And that's huge. This is much bigger than the context in which I heard it used as a child. During the summers, my brother Zach and I would spend some time with our grandparents, Granny and Rabbit. I called him Rabbit because he had big ears. And Zach would always get in trouble because he was a liar. And it's not that he was a worse kid than I was. It was just I was better at it, so I didn't get caught. But what Rabbit would do with Zach every single time is he would, when he knew he was lying, he would allow him the opportunity to come clean. And he would quote this right here. Zach, the truth will set you free. Now, of course, we understood what that meant. That meant that if he told the truth one last time, this last opportunity, he would be free from the belt that was hanging up in his closet in his bedroom. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that any man who believes in him displays true belief by submitting to his authority as Lord over their lives. He experiences the knowledge of truth as he gets to see the full glory of Christ. Glories of the only Son from the Father And that in that knowledge of truth, freedom comes. When we know Christ, we know where we've been, and we know what he's done for us, we experience freedom. He is the true source of freedom. As we continue in verses 33 through 36. The Jews answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son lives forever. So if the son, notice there that he capitalized, that S is capitalized because he's referring to himself. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, immediately we begin to see some signs of the false belief in the Jewish people and their response to Jesus' words. Jesus says, if you a true disciple will continue, will abide in my word, and they then say, well, wait a minute. We haven't been enslaved to anybody. They're challenging his authority right off the bat. They're starting to show some of this. It's false belief. They argue that they don't need freedom because they are already free. They're God's chosen people. Through the line of Abraham. So then Jesus clarifies himself and he uses what is helpful for us to see. It's comprehensive, it's exhaustive, it's universal language. He says, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone. So I hope you're starting to see now that when I said Jesus wasn't going to be condemning them in this passage, that you're starting to believe that you're starting to see it because what Jesus was here, he he was pointing out to them, you're already condemned. You are a slave to sin. You're telling me you're not because you're trusting in the line of Abraham as your source of freedom. But I'm telling you that you who commit sin are slaves to sin and that I am the true source of freedom. He warns them that though they are the offspring of Abraham by blood and they find themselves in the proverbial house, they will not remain there forever if they continue as slaves to sin. They must become sons in order to remain there forever because the slave does not stay forever in the house. Paul echoed these words of Christ to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 8, speaking. If you go back and look at this, verses 1 through 3, Paul is lamenting over the state of Israel. This is where he came from. He says, I wish that I would be accursed on their behalf. And he comes in in verse 4 and he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But, and he quotes Genesis twenty-one twelve here, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Jesus told them that they weren't true disciples just because they come from the line of Abraham, because of who their mama and dad was. He said in order to be true disciples, they must first be set free by Him, the Son, capital S, the true source of freedom, so that they could become sons, lowercase s, of God, and remain in that house forever. So I hope we understand the universal truth that he says there when he talks about the slavery of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Without being set free by him, we continue on in slavery rather than continuing on in his word. This is the state of anyone who has not trusted in Christ's work of atonement on the cross and surrendered their lives in submission to Him as Lord. So this declaration of slavery should cause us to consider where we fall. Are we slaves to sin? If you have trusted in Christ as both Savior and Lord, then reading of your former slavery this morning and how you've been set free, my prayer is that you were you would be reminded. Where you came from, and that you would be filled with joy and thanksgiving. I hope you see your Christ, your Savior, your Deliverer, your Redeemer, your source of true freedom, and you are filled with praise. I hope that frees you up this morning in whatever funk you're in, and whatever struggle you're going through. I hope that truth frees you up to celebrate this morning. And I hope that you continue to abide in his word out of that joy, out of that thanksgiving and continue to allow the word to purify you, sanctify you so that you resemble your savior more and more every day. And if you continue to examine yourself and determine that you're like the crowd, standing condemned, possibly believing in the things that Jesus is saying to be true, but not trusting them to the point that you're willing to submit your, your life to him. I hope you feel the gravity of the situation you're in when you read these words that Jesus spoke. The truth is that you're in bondage and that you're in need of the Son of Freedom, Jesus Christ. And only He can deliver you. No one else in this room can. There's nothing you can do. And if that's you, I pray that you wouldn't be like the crowd who, when faced with that reality, took their eyes off of Jesus and looked to other means to justify their freedom. They look to false sources of freedom, as we'll see in verses 37 through 41. Jesus continues and he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Notice there that there's a different differentiation between the father, God, and their father, who they're claiming, Abraham. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. Notice he's saying that Abraham is not their father now. They said to him, "We are we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God." So real quickly here, what we see is we see three false sources of freedom. First, they looked for freedom in their heritage, their bloodline, their ancestry. They argued that their family tree proved that they were free. And we've already spoken on the biblical argument against this. So let's consider what this looks like today because I'm pretty sure not one of us are going to say our father is Abraham. We've had many signs, But what might we point to? Some of us are church people. Some of us grew up. We were the baby baptized from the very beginning. It's a joke, but you understand what I'm saying. It's like you grew up in the church. And we can get caught up in the fact that our whole family, if we go all the way back to generations, our great, great, great grandfather planted the church, and we grew up in that church, and generations have come up, and we've all been in the church. You've got church planters, pastors, deacons, organ players, worship leaders, sprinkled throughout your whole bloodline. You may have grown up in a home where that big family Bible was out on the, the coffee table. The one that nobody read from that just got dusty maybe once a year. But that it was out on the coffee table so that anybody who came in your home would know this is a Christian home. Or you know, you, you've got somewhere in the house on the, on the walls as for me in my house. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? That's good. That means God's redeemed you. You didn't go up in a Christian home? That's That's great. But for a lot of us, that's what we grew up with. It was all over the house. Everybody knew, when you come in here, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In fact, you've been in church so long you, and heard so many sermons that you knew that this is the application I was going to make. You, you saw it coming. You've always known the values of the church and have continued on in those values, but answer this, be honest with yourself. Have you trusted in Jesus for your freedom? or have you trusted in your heritage? Are you abiding in Christ, or are you abiding in His church? Because those are two very different things, and the answer to that question is of the utmost importance. Heritage makes for a poor Savior. It is a false source of freedom. The second false source of freedom is morality. What Jesus does is He finally unloads the full truth and says that those who have not surrendered in complete belief belief to Him, He's going here. They're the children of the devil. Now that would have been an incredibly bold statement in this audience. And time does not allow us to spend time considering how profound that was. But if you've been putting yourself in this situation and you've got God's chosen people telling you that, well, we are free. And Jesus says, why? And they say, because our father is Abraham. And he comes back and says, your father is the devil. You understand the gasps of air, possibly, or the anger, the shock that that would have caused. So the crowd, in its anger, points to their morality as a source of freedom. They say, oh yeah? Well, we weren't born of sexual immorality like you were. See, what they're referencing there is that scandalous birth of Christ, the immaculate conception that was perceived by many as Mary committing adultery. They're trying to gain the upper hand. They say, oh yeah? Well, how moral are you? Instead of dealing with the truth, they deflected and attacked the person that was speaking truth to them. We do this too. When confronted with the truth that we are sinners in bondage, we compare ourselves to others so that we can feel a sense of freedom. We think things like, well, I'm a good person because I fill in the blank. Or, well, I do make some mistakes, but I'm still a good person. I mean, I'm better than fill in the blank. that's what they were doing. We look to our good works as our source of freedom rather than the good work of Christ upon the cross that made up for our bad works. Sometimes we have this false perception that if we do enough good things, it'll overcome the number of bad things that we've done. And maybe God will graciously let us in because after all, He is loving. And that's who He is. Only trust in Christ will deliver us. Morality is a deceiver. If you are placing your salvation in how moral you are compared to another individual, I go back to that Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I hope that strikes you as possibly bad news because you know you're not perfect. But I want to give you good news because Jesus was. And he went to the cross and paid the price for those of us who aren't perfect so that we would be clothed in his righteousness, not our own. So you understand now why you can't trust in what you can do and what your morality is. It's only trust in Christ that will deliver us. Morality makes for a poor savior. It just deceives us into thinking that we're free. Lastly, they point to religion. They declare that they are God's children. And it's similar to the first two, kind of a combination of them both. They point to their religious commitments as their source of freedom. We should be cautious here as well so we don't deceive ourselves. Committing to reading the Bible over the next two years... Will not set you free. Showing compassion to others, possibly even asking God to care for people in the form of prayer, that does not set you free. Participating in communion does not set you free. The religious act of baptism does not set you free. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Freedom, only He can do that. Religion makes for a poor redeemer as well. And I hope you see, you may have heard that preached from a pulpit before, and so a lot of you who grew up in church, it's like, okay, I've heard all this before. We're walking through Scripture, and I hope you see that that's what people do. That's what they did back in Jesus' day when Jesus says, You are slaves to sin. They say, no, I'm not, and this is why. My heritage. My morality. My religion. The application this morning, straight from the text, is to examine ourselves. That's not fun. Natalie's studying for her test. She's got a test tomorrow. Taking a test is not fun. Because what happens when you take that test? For some of us, what it really shows is that we don't know anything. We don't know enough, right? It reveals the flaws in our thinking. Because when we get graded, when we, when we answer those questions, and it comes back wrong, how do you feel? But that test is led to point out to you, to reflect to you what you don't know where you're wrong. That's what this is, right? We're examining ourselves so that we may see where we're wrong. In this case, this is the biggest examination you could ever go go through. It's the difference between eternal glory with our Savior and eternal condemnation under His wrath. So to those who will examine themselves and find that you've passed the test, not due to what you've done, but because of Christ, I want to encourage you to consider that freedom. If the Son has set you free, then we are free indeed. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. We have been set free from the bondage of sin in two ways. First, we can overcome it when it comes knocking on our door. And it will. We are in the house forever. We're no longer slaves. We are now sons who get to stay in that house forever. And we do not answer to sin anymore. We have been set free from that bondage. So when it comes knocking and comes calling, we don't have to let it in. So don't. Second, we are free from the consequences of sin. That means that we can celebrate. I hope that that stirs your affections for Christ this morning. That when you consider what He's done and how He's bought you back from that bondage, you can celebrate in that that He's delivered us, we are no longer bound by the past mistakes we have made. And when we sin against God later today, tomorrow, or some other day in the future, Lord forbid it, we know that Christ has set us free from that consequence of death. And that we've been sealed with His Holy Spirit until the day He returns, where we will reign alongside Him. And until then, We press on. We continue on abiding in His words because that's what true disciples do. And they let the Word of God purify us, sanctify us. We let the Word of God point out to us where we're wrong because all of Scripture is profitable. It's profitable for teaching, teaching us what is right. It is profitable for reproof, Showing us where we're wrong, it is profitable for correction. Showing us how, yes, this is where you're wrong, but this is how you can be made right. And that whole process is profitable for our sanctification, for us to continue on becoming more and more into the image of our son so that he would be made much of. So we submit to the authority that it has over our life and we pursue holiness whatever it takes. To any who look at these words of Christ and maybe you're a little uncomfortable, possibly angry because now I've challenged your salvation, forget what I said. If that's a a stumbling block to you, I say forget what David said this morning, but I want you to go back and look at the words of Christ. I pray that you would examine yourself according to those words because that is truth. Jesus closed this section of Scripture with these words. What we could look at and consider as the test of slavery. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil... And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let us all seek the truth and not settle for lies. And may God reveal that truth to us. I pray that when the words of God are presented to us, we hear them. But that we aren't simply hearers. I pray that we would find ourselves abiding in those words. Let's pray. there's anyone who has questions, as you're reflecting, as you're examining yourself, I'll be available in the back of the room while we worship. And if you have been convinced this morning that you are a slave to sin and that you need the son of freedom to set you free, I'll be available for that as well. And we can talk about that.